This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Randy Davis, Vice President and CIO of CGH Medical Center in Sterling, Illinois. Randy, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Good to be with you, Laura. Now, before we dive into our discussion here, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. Everyone has a boring career story, so I'll offer up mine. Two days after graduating with an accounting degree at the ripe age of 21, uh, should I say it was all the way in 1980, uh, I began work in a field I didn't know existed three months before that, uh, namely uh, medical group practice administration. Uh, I then spent the next 30 years managing uh, large physician group practices. In 2011, my group was purchased by our local hospital, CGH Medical Center here in Sterling, Illinois. And I managed the combined group there for a couple of years. And then with another boring story I won't uh, bore you with, uh, I was uh, asked to move over into the role of CIO and deal with some things that we needed to address here. So I've been doing that for the past nine years. So the quick summary is I have been in this uh, healthcare business for 41 years. Well, that's fascinating. And especially to think about, you know, coming from a background of more of the medical group management and administration side of things versus the technology side and then jumping into the CIO role. I can imagine that it was, you know, a, a very interesting leap, but um, also, you know, something that obviously you've excelled at having done it for the past nine years. You know, you, you have to learn a little bit about just about everything when you run a physician group practice, and that has served me very well. The overlap into the role of CIO has been, uh, you know, it's been unique. Absolutely. The first thing I want to talk about today is looking at um, some of the uh, risk-based contracting. Obviously, that is, you know, for some groups, that's something that they've already begun doing or been doing for a while. For other hospitals and health systems, you know, they're just starting to dip their toe into it. Where do you see some of the gaps in making risk-based contracting a widespread reality? And what's your role as CIO in, in doing that? So we'll talk about gaps here, so I don't mean to sound like uh, Debbie Downer in this, but that's what we're going to talk about here, are gaps. And when it comes to uh, at-risk contracting, capitated care, you know, many names for it, uh, I have a, a sense of deja vu uh, because I had uh, nearly 50% of my clinic's business in at-risk capitated uh, care plans back in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, what I'm observing today is that the struggles to be profitable are still real, and I believe most of the lessons uh, that came about in the 80s and 90s have been lost both to retirements and the passage of time, which is kind of a shame because here we are again. So some of the gaps. First thing would be uh, how are physicians paid? Uh, one of my mantras in life is follow the money. And when physicians are paid based on a volume-based model, it simply doesn't work uh, in, a, in a capitated uh, uh, environment. Uh, you know, I remember the, back in 2017, you know, another challenge has to do with market share. So there was a study put out by a reputable uh, 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 publication and in their research, they found 95% of the practices would gain revenue 
as long as the practice patient population was 63% or more enrolled in capitated plans. Uh, in contrast, 95% would lose revenue if less than 23% of their patients were under a capitated model. And therefore, the danger of that is when I hear other colleagues and other hospitals talking about this, they see a 23% patient involvement as nirvana, to which I say, well, you better, be, you better know your data because that is some dangerous waters you're swimming in. Uh, and I can attest to that, uh, both based on current reading and my experience from those plans in the 80s and 90s. There are significant issues with adverse selection uh, with patients. Uh, one has to consider whether your market is large enough for the enrollment needed in the plan uh, to give enough bodies in that capitated plan to give you a shot at being profitable. People don't, uh, you know, I think, I'm not keeping track here, these are the fourth or fifth item now. Uh, people do not consider the missed opportunity costs. And by that, I mean, when you start training your physician staff on the realities of what they need to do to be profitable uh, and provide good care, of course, in a capitated environment, that means trying to cut out unnecessary tests. Well, that bleeds over into your, into your volume-based uh, uh, contracts that you may have. So it's not just, <clears throat> you know, the, the capitated health plans that you need to worry about. If you're, going, if you're training your physicians to bleed off unnecessary tests, that's going to apply to everyone, and not enough folks think about that. <clears throat> uh, Risk-based means restricted care choices. Uh, denials at one time were made by insurance companies. The current model has those uh, denials being placed more and more back with the hands of physicians, and physicians are horrible at telling people no. Uh, another item is that if you spend a lot of money outside your system with other facilities or other physicians, it's a financial killer. So this model generally does not work in anything other than the larger or largest systems. Now, there's some caveats to that, but I think as a, as a general comment, that's true. Um, I think hospitals today have a very difficult time with standardization of care. Right? Physicians like to think for themselves and they like to make the decisions that they feel are best. Capitated health plans, it's really about standardization of care in the quest to uh, provide good care with the least amount of uh, expenses relating to the evaluation of a patient as you, as, you can, as you can properly get by with. And boy, if you don't have experience with that or your physicians are being introduced to it uh, for the first time, especially the younger physicians, that's a tough nut to crack. And I alluded to it before, but you know, systems do horribly living in two worlds. When you're in a capitated environment and when you're in a fee-for-service environment, it is the classic one foot on the dock, one foot on the boat analogy. And it almost always leads to someone getting wet and cold. Uh, and, you know, 
I could talk for a half hour on that point alone, but it's it's a very real uh, it, it's a very real thing that uh, hospitals have to deal with. Uh, and you have to know your costs. You must know your costs in a uh, at-risk environment. And the dirty little secret, despite all the talk about analytics, is that most hospitals are still flying by the seat of their pants. They won't fuss up to it, or they'll have modest analytics or a decision support department. But knowledge on the true cost of care, uh, if I put a few drinks and enough CIOs and they come clean with me, they'll tell you that, yeah, yeah, their hospitals aren't where they need to be. And then I guess the last point, because I can, I mean, I can keep going on this, um, is that patients begin to like it, right? Hey, you can go anywhere as long as your physician, you know, uh, approves it or your plan approves it. But my experience has been people will enjoy it until the reality of choice, or rather no choice, becomes apparent to them. Uh, so you can have a bit of a you can have a bit of a PR uh, issue there. Uh, I said I was going to stop, but I'm going to I'm going to cover just like a, a couple other things. Um, an at-risk contract, especially on the commercial side, it's really related to the the existing job market. So I don't see employers pushing this point in an era where they have an incredibly difficult time putting out signs in every employee parking lot they have for workers. Uh, so offering plans that limits choice and limits physician panels, hospital choices, et cetera, uh, it's hard to do in an environment where people are scrambling to find an adequate workforce. So overall, you know, I mean, I could give you some positives, but there are an awful lot of gaps to a system being successful in an at-risk environment. So how's that for rapid fire? <laughs> Absolutely. Randy, you brought up so many interesting points there and looking at um, what risk-based contracting needs to really be effective and then, you know, what the environment will look like and what happens when that actually does occur. And I'm wondering, you know, one of the things you mentioned and talked about was the data analytics and capabilities that realistically hospitals and health systems have today. How do you see those evolving over the next few years? I, I know they're not where they should be or could be um, in an optimal environment, but what do you think will happen or occur in order for them to reach that point and, and will it happen within the next few years? Yeah, <clears throat> another interesting subject and, uh, and another uh, long one I could ramble on. So uh, where will it go? Well, it depends upon whether hospitals will finally step out of their shell with vendors and demand action. I will say that most <clears throat> hospital systems um, sit and wait for their vendors to provide them the tools. Uh, you know, I kind of equate that to that scene out of Animal House where, you know, thank you, sir, may I have another? And, you know, it, it's the single biggest issue we have because the industry in general doesn't speak with a united voice. All right? Every vendor deals with each client on an individual basis. 
and what each client may be asking for is largely unknown to the other clients uh, for that vendor. And therefore, what is being produced on the analytics side is generally what vendors happen to hand to us. And I don't think that model works. So I am optimistic that enough hospitals will be making noise about this, that it will progress. But at the same time, I, I am not sure that I would place a hefty bet on it. I think what we need is data that allows us and a tool that allows us to keep up with the conversations that take place at manager level above when decisions are being considered. You know, the, the multi-million dollar decisions, I don't worry about. There's lots of analysis that goes into those. But one, what is more important, you know, the, the one decision for 100,000 or the, t the 10 decisions that take place at manager levels the cumulative, you know, that are 10,000 apiece. And I think on the analytics side, what we find is questions about staffing, questions about revenue, who's bringing in what revenue, what the patient mix is, what the age mix is, you know, the time to the third most recent appointment. You know, when you get a people, a group of people together in the room and they start debating actions on specific issues, we don't need a decision support department at that time. We need a tool that the people in those meetings, when someone says, oh, well, you know, this physician brings in, you know, X, Y, well, no, I wonder what physician X brings in in actual cash revenue to the organization. That's not a question that needs to wait for a week to be answered. And the tools, by and large, don't provide that. And then the last thing I'll, I'll say on analytics, uh, you know, it has to do with the data for both incoming and outgoing referrals. I mean, I, I think it's, it's just, it's awful in our industry. And, I, and I'll compare it to Walmart. Do you think when Walmart puts out items to sell in their main runways, I don't even know what you call them in the retail space, you know, the, you know, the, the main hallways that you go up and buy, they know exactly how many things are being bought by those locations. But yet, if we turn today and say, what is the value of referrals that we've received from XYZ physician group, individual practice, portion of the community, uh, by and large, we have no idea. And it's, again, because the vendors are not being pushed to provide the information that allows hospital systems to make decisions on a real-time basis without going through the hassle of putting requests in to a nameless decision to support department that you're lucky to get an answer back to in two weeks, which is generally a week later, you know, than the point in time which the decision has already been made. So there you go. I, I think we as an industry uh, are a little behind in our analytics capabilities. It's not that the solutions aren't out there, but they are generally out there in third parties and most hospitals don't like to do that. They wanna stick with one vendor 
accept the analytics capability that one vendor may have and get by with it. And, you know, I, uh, I'm hopeful that we'll progress beyond that. Uh, but as I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm not placing a big bet on it. Got it. That's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense in, in looking at, you know, what type of analytics that you need and the data that would be most helpful for health systems to provide better care. The, no, I, what I was saying, I sit in meetings all the time yeah. and people will, you know, they just talk in these meetings. You know, they'll say, boy, we're really busy. We need blah, blah, blah. And as soon as they say that, uh, okay, as soon as you say we're really busy, where is the analytics that allows me to bring up that department, right? Show the number of appointments, show the the average time to third appointment for each person with it. So as people are talking about things, is it urban legend that they're talking about or is it based in fact? And until we have these these analytic tools that allow us to sit in these meetings and as people are talking, you know, your your mouse is moving and clicking and your answers are keeping up with the conversation. Until we can do that, I think our decisions will not be as good as they could be. That makes a lot of sense. And it's definitely something that it sounds like would be very valuable for healthcare providers um, and physicians in the future. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, I know you mentioned uh, as uh, an example, um, Walmart. Do you see the big retailers like Walmart as a partner or a competitor in the healthcare space? And what should hospitals really be afraid of when they think about these types of companies getting into the healthcare? Well, to answer your first question, of course, they'll be a competitor. I mean, by and large, hospitals uh, are used to only dealing with other systems, and uh, they are, but you know, it, that's an interesting subject. I mean, the Walmart, CVSs, Walgreens, et cetera, et cetera, of the world, I'd say about that, first, we should be happy uh, that we've seen as much leadership turnover in those retail systems as we have. And, yeah, I kind of equate it to, you know, building a building. I, I think these systems have gone out and they've tried to attract good architects. And architects are great, but eventually you got to turn those plans over to a contractor who actually knows how to build the building. And thus far, I think those systems have largely struggled with that, but they're not going to struggle with that forever, which is why I think some systems, you know, hear the name, you know, Walmart, and they say, yeah, well, they're not in my market, so I'm not worried about them. And I, I think that's somewhat of a short-sighted comment. Um because that's not going to last uh, for years. Uh, systems, hospital systems in general, are not going to be able to direct these retailers. They're going to do what they do. I would say that we feed off them uh, for the specialty referrals that they will need. Uh, we will have to get good all over again, just like a surgeon was who hung out their shingle. They were very good at schmoozing primary care physicians because that was the source of their business. In hospital systems today, I think so many specialists are just used to that business flowing to them. Uh, that is going to change as these retailers go out there. So that's something that we're going to have to deal with. But I, I think that the, the biggest thing that the 
Walmarts and, and Walgreens and so on of the world are missing uh, is that they don't understand where hospitals are really making their money. And it's not on professional services. Payments to physicians and staff and buildings and equipment take nearly all that money. Hospitals make money off their ancillaries. You know, it, it, it has always, you know, for most primary care physicians, the average fee for labs and x-rays coming out of an office visit many times surpasses that of the professional fee that is charged in that visit. And I sit back sometimes and I look at the market cap of, say, LabCorp. It's $27 billion. Walmart's $397 billion. When a Walmart starts taking an interest in someone like a LabCorp or starts figuring out, you know what? If we didn't even offer nurse practitioner services at our facility, if all we did was open up a lab drawing uh, area and we went after ERISA contracts for those employers who self-insured or cut deals with insurers, I mean, my goodness. I mean, first, Walmart would make ha money hand over fist at half the price of a hospital system. And I don't, you know, those are the kind of things that I think hospital systems should be worrying about. The, the majority of primary care for, uh, services, you know, another dirty little secret, the majority are able to be provided quite competently by MPs and PAs. So there really isn't a significant barrier to entry uh, by all these vendors. It's more, again, about them figuring out after they deal with the architecture of their system. They've got to figure out the people they can bring in to actually build it and make it work. And I think they're going to do that. And if they ever latch on to the significance of ancillary services, uh, my goodness, that will get the attention of hospital systems throughout the nation. That's a really fascinating point, Randy. You know, just to think about um, that strategy and how Walmart and others could really employ that to their benefit and obviously, as you said, detriment to hospitals and health systems in their local communities. Yeah, and hospital systems. I mean, what cross-marketing opportunities does a hospital system have? Effectively nothing. You come into a Walmart and the cross-marketing opportunities for the row upon row upon row of goods that they have in that facility uh, you know, modest discounting that are involved for people that choose to go there. I mean, their, their cross-marketing opportunities are immense. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think they're going to get it figured out. And I think it is going to drive even more consolidation. Uh, some would say, how is that possible to have even greater engine for consolidation on uh, with hospitals that exist today, well, you start cutting into the ancillary revenue stream of small and mid-sized hospitals, and that'll take off even further. Uh, so it has all kinds of ramifications for the healthcare market. And from a consumer perspective, I don't know any of that any of those are bad. Uh, 
And at the end of the day, consumers still matter. Uh, and, you know, so I think there's not a heck of a lot that hospitals can do about it. Uh, hospital systems are along for the ride, and the best you can do is try to coexist and carve whatever niche your local market identifies as being there. When vendor, when companies like Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, blah blah blah, get it figured out. Absolutely, that's that's a really interesting point. It'll be definitely um, fascinating to see how it all develops. Randy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you soon. Sure. Thanks, Laura.